sometimes you're going to get electric sports cars and flights to Mars. And other times you're going to get interference in geopolitical happenings within Ukraine and Russia. Right. And maybe you'll get sabotaging Ukraine. (laughs) But again, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just saying, hypothetically, if you were to give a cokehead a quarter trillion dollars. Hello and welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack. And today we are going to be talking about a very prominent figure within the modern gay rights movement. I'm excited to untangle for you the naughty details of the life of Sylvia Rivera. Rivera is one of the more interesting queer people to come out of the gay rights movement that was sparked by the Stonewall Riots. There are so many fabricated facts about the fabulous Miss Rivera that it could be hard to discern where the person ends and the mythology begins. Today, we want to talk about what's true, what's not, and the legacy Sylvia Rivera left as a person and as a mythological figure in the gay rights movement. Okay, I'm excited to hear about this. As much as we like to engage in wild speculation, as we prove in every episode, I think a big part of what we want to do here as well is to actually untangle what our history is as queer people. And with one person in particular, looking at somebody like Sylvia Rivera, who is so famous, I think that she gets a lot of accolades for the things that she just didn't actually do, while the things <laughs> that she did do completely go to the wayside. And I, I think it's actually important that, to know what she actually did do. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the beginnings of Sylvia Rivera. I'm not in the business of deadnaming anyone, so I will say that while Rivera was Sylvia's given surname, Sylvia was the name that was chosen for her by a pack of kindly drag queens when she was a teenager. She was born July 2nd, 1951 in New York City and was assigned male at birth. And to be perfectly honest with you, from the start, she had a pretty shitty life. Her father left her family shortly after she was born, And she was orphaned at the age of three when her mother died by suicide. Oh, my God. Right. Rivera was then raised by her Venezuelan grandmother, who was strict and unforgiving of young Sylvia's proclivities toward the flamboyant. According to Sylvia, she was punished by her grandmother for being effeminate and wearing makeup. Schism between Rivera and her grandmother grew wide enough that in 1962, at the age of 10, she left home and began living on the streets of New York City. Oh, my God. Like so many runaway youth, especially queer youth, Rivera turned to sex work to support herself. And that's, you know, I am definitely for the legalization of sex work. I think it makes sex workers safer. Absolutely, I agree. But when people like Gloria Steinem argue that the average street prostitute is a homeless teenager or in this case a homeless child it's a hard reality that that we need to realize is true i don't know that all the guys who pick up street prostitutes really think about the fact that these are people who are probably forced into this work who are almost certainly forced into this work if they're working on the street absolutely and a 10 year old obviously you would know something was wrong and i think that that's you know i think we do such a disservice to what sex work is and what safe sex work can be because I, I think a lot of times people don't understand the link between sex work and human trafficking, mm. right? And so you look at somebody like Rivera who um, 
you know, at the time, transgender wasn't even a term. We're going to we're going to go into how even at that point, you know, she called herself a half sister, um, but sort of considered herself a, a transvestite um, that, uh, you know, this is something that a lot of queer youth wind up having to do at a very young age and not because they want to, but because that's the only thing that's available to them. And I think when, you know, when Larry and I both talk about, and I'll speak for you for a second, when Larry and I both talk about the legalization of sex work, it, it's in that sense. It's saying we need to put guardrails in place in order to create safe situations so that if a sex worker is abused while on the job, that they have recourse to be able to deal with that rather than try to ignore it and hope it goes away trying to find ways to create a situation where you have safety for those who choose to do it and a social system where 10 year olds do not feel like they have to go and sell their bodies in order to survive. Yeah. And also I would point out that I don't have the number off the top of my head, but a shocking percentage of the time when a sex worker is assaulted, when they're raped, it is by a police officer who presents his badge. You know, that's just a, that's a conversation for a day yeah. that I don't want to yeah. scream. Okay, so it was during this time in Rivera's teenage years that she met and was taken in by the drag queens and street hustlers of 42nd Street in New York, including Marsha P. Johnson, who y'all know we're going to have an episode for her. According to Stephen Cohen in his book, The Gay Liberation Youth Movement in New York, Rivera was given the name Sylvia by an old bull dyke and drag queen known as the King and Queen of 42nd Street. Oh my God, forget I love them. What, forget right? about Sylvia Rivera. Let's, what's <laughs> right? this episode? Yeah, so we're going to do this episode. Like I said, forget about the miracle on 34th Street. Were these the uptown girls that Billy Joel was talking about? <laughs> when Rivera was just shy of 18, the gay liberation movement experienced its first modern watershed moment with the Stonewall riots. Like we learned from our Frida and Josephine episode, the details of queer history can be hazy and speculatory at best. Rivera claimed to be a central figure in the riots, sometimes even going as far as saying she was the one who started the whole uprising. In a great article published in 2019 by David Carter called Exploding the Myths of Stonewall, a plethora of credible accounts destroys Rivera's claims of being an instrumental part of the Stonewall uprising. One of my favorite parts of Carter's article is an exchange that was relayed to Carter by Bob Kohler, a prominent figure in the LGBTQ movement of the 1960s and 70s and a friend of Rivera's. Kohler relayed a conversation he had with Rivera about how he would support her assertions of being involved with the uprising. The following happened. I'm excited. Yep. Rivera says, Bob, will you back me on having thrown the first Molotov cocktail? Sylvia, you didn't throw a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> Rivera says, will you back me on having thrown the first brick? And Sylvia, Kohler says, Sylvia, you didn't throw a brick. <laughs> Rivera says, will you back me on having thrown the first bottle? Kohler says, I will back you on having thrown a bottle. Oh, oh she's negotiating. That's just, honestly, I love this sort of love this entire thing. The bargaining oh. and the negotiation to at least get a footnote in the history of the Stonewall Uprising. 
but I mean, the fact that, I mean, as we'll discuss later, Sylvia <laughs> Rivera was a really important figure in gay history. And I think it just, yes. it, it really speaks to how limited our understanding and frankly desire to understand gay history has been <laughs> that like, if you weren't involved in Stonewall, then you weren't involved at all. Which That's is exactly right. idiotic. Yeah, it's 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 the like if you weren't there, then you weren't anywhere. And that's why it's really fascinating with Rivera, this need to be in this moment when there were so many other moments that really feel like they get glossed over too. It's almost like we as gay people get so latched onto Stonewall. And I think it's because it's pop culture, mm-hmm. right? It is it is popular culture. It's like something that even the normies know about, right? It's been smoothed and it's been polished and it's become palatable. The National Park Service oversees the bar now and you can get a National Park passport stamp from it. And almost in this way, it's like, oh, well, for me to get recognition, I need to have been a part of that. But Mm -hmm. as we're going to see, Rivera actually had a much larger impact on something that is really, really socially significant. So what, what did happen? Where was she when Stonewall was going down? So it is the truth, huh? Because we know from the Stormy DeLavier episode that neither she nor Marsha P. Johnson were there as it broke out, at least. But we know Marsha P. Johnson was certainly there later. Right. So by numerous accounts, don't at me. This is history. Sometimes history is uncomfortable. By the accounts that we can find that have an actual modicum of truth and are based in reality, Rivera was passed out on a park bench in Bryan Park high on heroin that's that's really sad yeah yeah i mean and Um, can we again timelining rivera just turned 18 this is a girl this is this is a child so johnson marcia no mind johnson claims to have told rivera about the riot the first night But again, multiple accounts say that Rivera didn't travel downtown to Stonewall until two weeks later. Well, she had some heroin to sleep off. (laughs) That's a lot of heroin. That's a a lot of heroin, yeah. (laughs) LGBTQ historian Mark Duberman is quoted as saying that Rivera's assertions of her involvement in Stonewall are to be wildly unreliable. I mean, I guess I get it, right? It was evident pretty quickly that the uprising at Stonewall was different. It was the spark that the powder keg of the gay rights movement needed. It would be easy to see how people would want to claim a stake in that event. Rivera's life to that point had been a traumatic nightmare. Stonewall, in a way, represented the ultimate belonging for gay youth. Again, Rivera had just turned 18. Up to that point, she had been abandoned, ran away, got into child sex work, was homeless, and addicted to drugs. Plus, in subsequent years, Rivera saw that a lot of people who were involved with Stonewall were gaining notoriety and influence within the community. And if there is one thing that I can see from Rivera's life is that she desperately wanted to be relevant. Well, that also brings with it a greater ability to survive. Right, exactly. I I don't want to say marketability, but it's also marketability. Mm Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And palatability, right? And I think this is one of the reasons why the mythology of having somebody like Sylvia Rivera be such a relevant figure within the Stonewall Uprising is because of how 
sort of whitewashed and transphobic even the gay rights movement historically has been. The only way to sort of get recognized is to attach yourself to this one event, even if truly you didn't have anything to do with that specific moment. But Rivera did have something to do with with the movement as we're going to see. What's really fascinating as well is Rivera does not start to talk about her involvement with activism until 1970 when she was arrested for handing out pamphlets for the Gay Activists Alliance, the GAA. The GAA was founded after Stonewall to focus on the liberation of gay people, as it is quoted in the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project. Okay, that's awesome, though. Now, yeah. how, how did she get arrested for handing out pamphlets? What, what is the context in which they're like, that's not legal? Because it sounds pretty First Amendment-y to me. Well, you know... Um, as far as what it looks like is that she was handing stuff out, they asked her to stop, and she didn't, and, you know, it was probably mm. an issue of trespassing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, in the same way Good that, for you, Sylvia. In the same way Good that, you. you know, people get arrested for driving while black, right? Like, they, you don't need mm-hmm. a reason for the cops to harass you if they want to harass you. The GAA's model of uh, political activism mixed with theatrical demonstration served as a blueprint for future LGBT groups like ACT UP. There is evidence that Rivera was involved with GAA, and this was the start of her career as an activist. The same year she became involved in GAA, Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson founded the Straight Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, otherwise known as STAR. Which is the greatest name ever. Right? And this is a group of politically active radicals who provided housing and services to LGBTQ youth and sex workers in Lower Manhattan. Much of STAR was funded by the sex work of Johnson and Rivera. Oh my God. Yeah. And in November of 1970, STAR held a fundraising dance and was able to acquire enough funding to rent a four-bedroom apartment in the East Village. The apartment had no electricity or heat, but Rivera and Johnson were able to fix it enough that their kids, as they called the homeless trans youth, sex worker, and runaways, would have a place to stay. This was motivated by the bouts of homelessness that both Johnson and Rivera had experienced throughout their lives to that point. And for me, this is their their greatest relevance, honestly. Absolutely, to, this, this right to here. To the queer community. There's a lot to unpack here, right? I mean, were there other people chipping in or was this just sex workers using their own money, which they, they've acquired through mostly sex work, I would assume, to help get other sex workers off the street or to help get other homeless kids off the street? Was anyone else chipping in like as, as a charity? Yeah, I mean, there were, like I said, there was a dance that they held where they were able to raise enough money to pay for the first six months of rent for the star house as mm-hmm. they called it so there were people that were kind of chipping in but it was primarily the food and getting supplies and, and offering services a lot of that was specifically by rivera and johnson and it was absolutely driven by their experience as trans teenagers who had to make a living through sex work. And so understanding the violence that they experienced as trans people, as gay people, as sex workers, and wanting to provide infrastructure for the other youth out there that were going through the same thing. And it's funny because they were called the mothers of the house, right? So again, looking at the vernacular, 
as a thread. Mm-hmm. They were the mothers of the star house. But like, again, when we think of mothers, we're thinking of matronly, like in their 40s, 50s, 60s. These were kids in their young 20s that were doing this for teenagers. That's, I mean, that, that's incredible. Been an interview for an episode that will come up a few episodes from now. It was mentioned by an activist that it's hard to get adult gay men, or at least it used to be, really hard to get them to do anything for the kids or teenagers because they were afraid of being labeled pedophiles, right? For taking an interest in these kids. (laughs) But a 20-year-old, they're not going to probably face that same label. Well, and, and honestly, it's I, I completely get that. That's that's absolutely true. I also think, and, and this goes into, you know, the messy history of the queer movement, in the same way that we look at the feminist movement, massive issues arose with classism and racism and transphobia. Um, we're we're going to get into a little episode that happened, what, probably one of the most famous besides the Molotov cocktail brick and bottle that Rivera simultaneously threw at Stonewall. <laughs> it, was a, it was a brick, a bottle, and, uh, well, it was, and a Molotov cocktail. Was, and then we got talked down to a shot glass, right? <laughs> like, sh- I, think, I think eventually that's what they said. It was a shot glass at, by the end. Because that's the story that survives today is a shot glass that's thrown at a mirror. And there was no mirror. <laughs> but like, <laughs> that's the story. <laughs> Oh, fuck, I love it. I just love we love it. We love you, Sylvia. No, seriously. We do. So it's really fascinating. Before 1970, in, in interviews or talking to people, there was no mention from her of involvement in activism. And then after Stonewall and after she got arrested, then she started to sort of retcon herself into all of these movements, which again, she's like 18 years old. So she's saying, oh, yeah, I was on the front lines of the Vietnam protests when I was 12, which... Sure. I well, mean, po- possible, I guess, but it kind of sounds like she's about to claim credit for the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> this is when it's, you. It's it's about to it's about to go yeah. full George Santos here. Um, oh, okay. No, 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 no. But mm-hmm. but again, it's relevance. Like, mm-hmm. oh, look at look at that. I'm important within these movements. So you know, it's it's fine. Anyway, Ooh. here's the thing: is I think it's harmful. That, that she gets reduced down to sort of almost this caricature of, of Stonewall. Well, what she actually did was so fucking important and still so fucking important today. Mm-hmm. Also, can we just say we're living in a time where people think that tweeting or Xing, whatever it's called now, <laughs> is activism. Right, right. <laughs> they think that's activism. It's not. And oh. if we're reducing it to riots back then... That does not compare to creating a home for people who might not survive without it. Well, and exactly. It doesn't. And and not only that, but, you know, if if we are reducing it down to these watershed moments or these ruptures, we've gotten such a short attention span that it's really hard for lasting change to happen because we find out how messy and hard the work actually is. And we're like, nah, dude, I'd rather just sit on my couch and binge watch a show because going out there and actually putting myself in harm's way, doing the work in the trenches is is just messy and inconvenient, especially when we have a tendency to idolize and lionize people who are involved in the rupture moments. Mm -hmm. So you have somebody like Rivera who sort of knows that she's a part of... this one part that's really important, but continuously comes back to 
this moment that she just wasn't part of. Well, but she okay, but to be fair, okay, she was not part of that moment. Absolutely no, no, not. No, no, no. But the organization that introduced her to activism was born out of that moment. Yes. So it was a few weeks later. Yes. She absolutely joined up, which is great. Yes. Um, and it really important. We, we don't talk about the really hard work that went in these moments. We talk about the flashy moments. And that's exactly right? what you're saying. She's the yeah. one doing the hard work. And so for all of the people who were there that night and then went home and were like, wow, yeah, I totally told a cop mm-hmm. to go fuck himself and then never did mm-hmm. another thing for the movement. Like, okay, fine. But Rivera, who never ventured below 42nd Street until this, wound up doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And that did spur her into activism. And so even if she then decides to retcon her life, it doesn't erase what she did wind up doing after that. And, and again, she's like 19 years old at this point. So good for her. She, she got into activism as, as a teenager and did some really extraordinary activism. One of the central theses that I want to take from this is that she wasn't involved in Stonewall in the way that she is canonized to have been, but that doesn't make her impact any less within the queer community and within the gay rights movement. As is noted in the article, Revolutionaries on East 2nd Street, The Star House by Lena Rubin, the Star House was notable for several reasons. The most significant to me were that it was the first LGBTQ youth shelter in North America. Oh, wow. It was the first organization in the United States run by trans women of color. Oh, wow. And the first trans sex worker labor organization. That's pretty awesome. That's way more important than throwing a shot glass at Stonewall for me, to be perfectly honest. Like, those are things that are relevant and are still so relevant today. The Star House operated from November 1970 to July 1971. So the math is about oh, eight months. So short-lived, short-lived, but... The, the group got evicted for not being able to pay rent on the apartment. Uh, so going mm. back to your question of how were they able to pay for it, they weren't. They couldn't. They could keep it up. Damn. So after the Star House closed, the organization shifted their focus to championing the rights of trans individuals both within the LGBTQ community and within society at large. In 1971, Starr joined the GAA in the creation of Intro 475, which was a political action group lobbying for the passage of a municipal bill to protect LGBTQ people from discrimination. Starr and the Queer Liberation Front criticized GAA for intentionally leaving trans individuals out of the language of the proposed bill there has been a history of the gay rights movement being discriminatory toward trans individuals. Yeah, or at least exclusionary. Yes, I, that's a good way to put it, is, ex, mm. is, is exclusionary. There's a great book called Normal Life by an academic uh, by the name of Dean Spade, and he talks about how a lot of the labor done to get gay rights bills and, and protections for sexual minorities is oftentimes born on the backs of the work of transgender people and right when we get to the having that door opened that door gets shut on trans people like oh it's too much it's too soon so we promise we'll come back for you and i know that there has been criticism of the human rights campaign for for doing kind of that same thing of being very exclusionary and sort of what they lobby for because it seems like that's too much you know if we lobby for that we're not going to get rights right i mean to some degree it's the reality of incrementalism that's exactly what it is but it's also 
incredibly shitty to the people who are doing this work mm. and just to the people who are left out whether or not they're doing the work. Right. So the bill eventually became New York City's local law two of nineteen six. So they started in nineteen seventy one. Damn. And they eventually got it passed in nineteen eighty six. And the local law two of nineteen eighty six did not protect trans individuals from discrimination. It was not until two thousand two that a separate bill was passed to protect the trans community of New York City. Wow. Now keep two thousand two so th- thirty as a, thirty years later. Thirty years later and keep two thousand two as a year in mind it is understandable that rivera as an individual in addition to rivera as an activist would feel outrage at the gaa's capitulation to leave transgender individuals out of the language of the bill one of the times that rivera got arrested was when she was petitioning for the gaa's intro 475 so it was sort of a help us do our work but don't ask for recognition kind of thing After the closing of the Star House and the rift that was widening between GAA and trans alliances, Star declined and eventually stopped operating. Rivera claims that her firebrand speech she gave during the 1973 Christopher Street Gay Liberation Celebration was, quote, the death of Star. And so this was the was the Christopher Street Liberation what eventually became New York Pride. Yes. Yeah. 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 So they would do it the same. They would, you know, do it. Mm-hmm. during the anniversary of Stonewall. So this is four years after Stonewall. Well, that is not necessarily provable that that was the ultimate death of Star. The speech she gave and the reception it got is absolutely true and provable. Believe in a revolution, 
but you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights, or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. If you all want to know about the people that are in jail, and do not forget Bambi Lamore, and Dora Marks, Kenny Messner, and other gay people that are in jail, come and see the people at Starhouse on 12th Street, on 640 East 12th Street, between B and C, apartment 14. The people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club, and that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Give me a As she's giving this speech, you can just feel the discomfort from the audience, which is just a sea of mostly white, mostly cis gay men. They're uncomfortable. They're booing her. She's getting jeered by the crowd. She's being called names. It reminds me a lot of a similar speech or outburst that Richard Pryor, who was also you know bisexual, had at a gay rights event in the 70s, I think. Jean O'Leary, who was the one who was giving the speech at the time, was this feminist lesbian who, by all accounts, was a turf. It was a really hateful sort of situation. And it's heartbreaking because it's like, I, I don't know necessarily what Rivera was expecting by sort of commandeering the sage and going on that rant. I, I understand the frustration that was coming out, but also the response that she got feels like it was pretty expected to be honest. Like, do they need to be called out? Absolutely. But it's a lot. But, you know, playing the long game, who are we rooting for today? Like, it's not the crowd. No, exactly. But here's the real kick in the Mm -hmm. pants. Mm -hmm. After she leaves the stage, she's ranting to Marsha P. Johnson about having Mm -hmm. Bennett Stonewall and how how disrespectful they are to her. And according to Mm -hmm. David Carter, Johnson looked at her and said, you know you weren't there. And Rivera got quiet at that point. It makes you wonder if if you tell a lie enough times, maybe you believe it, you know? Yeah. Or at least you expect to be treated like other people believe it. Right. Exactly. And I think that's what's so fascinating is, you know, if you repeat something long enough, eventually it becomes true. And I think for her, she really was involved with Stonewall. And in a way she was, right? She was involved in the direct aftermath of Stonewall. I'm also hearing in that that Starhouse was a thing again at that point. Well, they always had kind of like a little pop-up when they would get enough money, they would sometimes rent a hotel room and then come and get like 50 of their friends to come and stay with them because it was inside. It was a place where they could go. And so they had little trailers and they had little storefronts every so often, but the actual star house where they actually had a, a dwelling where people could live, that only lasted about eight months. So that pretty much killed Star. Like that was that was it. Mm. Uh, in 1974, 
Rivera moved to Terrytown, New York, which is upstate, with her partner, where they lived and owned a catering business. I love that. Right. In 1992, so 18 years later, the murder of her friend and mentor, Marsha P. Johnson, brought her back to New York. Now, I'm not quite sure what happened with their relationship with her partner. It's, details are scant on that. But when she finds herself in New York, she's living in the gay piers of Christopher Street, which was a homeless encampment that was primarily inhabited by queer youth. There's a two-hour interview with her when she's she's living on the piers at that point, sort of talking about her history and relevance within the gay movement. So she'd been living in Terrytown, being a, a caterer with her partner. Yeah. Marsha P. Johnson died. She's like, I got to go back to New York. Right. I, I got to go finish this work. Right. But she's immediately on the streets again. There's no yeah, one. She's homeless. And a matter of fact, okay. this interview and the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson has parts of it. And then there's a full two-hour clip of it online. Um, she's, she's living in a tent, essentially, on the piers and is struggling with drugs again. During this time, however, um, she is doing activism and she is seen as this icon within the gay rights movement. She tries to get Star restarted twice including in Italy, which was in response to trans violence that was happening there in both times. Can we talk about how challenging it would be trying to make ends herself through sex work? Right. Addicted to drugs. She's really struggling with that. Right. And she is still focusing a ton of time and energy on activism. Yes. She wasn't able to get Star off the ground. At that point, too, she had changed the name from the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries to the Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries. Didn't really get off the ground. During this time as well, was very, very open with the criticism of, of how much the trans movement was either being ignored or marginalized within the gay rights movement. Sylvia Rivera died on February 19th, 2002 of complications from liver cancer. Now remember, I told you to remember 2002. Hmm. So it wasn't until after she had died that New York City finally passed protections for trans people. She literally spent her entire life fighting for this. And, and it eventually happened, right? And like so many people who are absolute icons and heroes within movements, they did not live to see the fruit of their work. Now, this is just an interesting point for me. And again, it talks about the, the power of mythmaking. And if you say something long enough, it becomes true. In the obituary for her in the Village Voice, titled, quote, A woman for her time in memory of Stonewall warrior Sylvia Rivera. Aww. Author Ricky Wilchins calls Rivera, quote, the Rosa Parks of the modern transgender movement, which ironically is actually fitting, just as Rosa Parks was not the first. Rosa Parks was an activist, too, and she wasn't the first. That's right. But she, there we go. <laughs> Shout out to Claudette Colvin. So what are we talking about in terms of total contribution? There is this amazing hand everyone their asses speech. There is the first shelter of its kind in North America. Right. There is the foundation of the first organization of its kind in North America. Right. There is all the activism before she goes to Terrytown, all the activism after she comes back from Terrytown. Right. And it's a consistent it's consistently lobbying and working for protections for truly some of the most marginalized groups of our country. 
she is a trans, half Venezuelan, half Puerto Rican woman of color who was forced into sex work at a young age and worked to imagine a life better for people who are also in the same situation. So even within her own struggles with homelessness and drug addiction, she still was looking at how is it that we can create a better present and future for our trans youth. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's a sad but inspiring story. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's hard. Is like I said, where does the myth end and the truth begin? And, you know, I, I guess the question that some people might have is, is, does it make a difference? No, I guess not. You know, it's, we look at somebody like Stormy Delavier and so much of her life gets centered around, oh, she was the old Ike who threw the first brick. Which also might not be true. Which also might not be I mean, true. The, well, I mean, about about punching the cop, it probably is because there's both her accounts and others. But it it might not be. It absolutely might not. And it, but um, I, th- I think what we need now, and, and it's funny because to geek out just a little bit mm-hmm. here, here Hofstede, who is an intercultural communication scholar, talks about the elements of culture and that all cultures, no matter how big or small, have these four different elements. And so there's rituals, heroes symbols and values and with heroes oftentimes we will change them and we will adapt their story to help embrace the values that we want our culture to have and so when you look at somebody like stormy de lavier or you look at somebody like sylvia rivera parts of their story get adapted to give us what we need as an element of culture within it so when we look at somebody like rivera the detail that we're not supposed to focus on is what exactly did she do or not do during Stonewall? It's here is this trans woman of color who is giving other trans people of color hope that life doesn't have to be really, really shitty. You know, and Stormy Delavier, you can be androgynous and butch and a bouncer and a bodyguard and a circus performer. And you can kick ass. And I think that when we create these myths, we're creating heroes to give us hope that when shit like anti-trans bills pass in places like Texas or Florida, that things will get better. Also, I think there's an element of just like understanding of history is so simplistic yeah. that rather than celebrate their work, we keep inserting them into other narratives. For example, if we want to talk about a time that trans women of color and drag queens and sex workers started a riot and attacked cops, you could go to the Compton's riot in San Francisco, which predated Stonewall. <laughs> right. And is amazing. And we're definitely going to do an episode about because <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what that was. Exactly. I believe it started when a drag queen threw her coffee on a cop, I, I think, something like that. Right. Absolutely the narrative that, that people are looking for. <laughs> and it's true. Right. And it, it it's a better story in many ways, but it's not the one people know. And people just want to insert these heroes into the stories they know. That's exactly right. And it, it does a disservice to everyone when that happens. And I think, yeah. and again, and it's hard because again, as as cis white people, and yes, we're we're both queer. I, I mean, I assume you're queer. Um, I guess I've never really asked. Uh, <laughs> you've you've seen the videos on the internet. <laughs> so many. <Oof>. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we 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 
get to come at this from an absolute place of privilege the the, the emotional mental physical spiritual labor that queer and trans people of color have done is immeasurable and we do a disservice by trying to insert them into something like Stonewall, which was a watershed moment. But which I- and, and also, as we noted in the Stormy Delavier episode, Tammy Novak, who was a trans woman, right. might have been the first person to, to, throw <laughs> to, to resist it. Right. right. Uh, but it's it's not a name that people know again. Right. So they want to insert the names they know into the stories they know. And as Sylvia Rivera proves, the people who wound up doing most of the work and putting themselves in a lot of danger were the people who had nothing to lose. So that's street kids, that is gender nonconforming people who were getting arrested all the time anyway, Mm -hmm. that's sex workers who were getting arrested all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the people who went home and could, could pass and be in the closet and not get arrested just for being on the streets all the time. That's right. Right. And and it becomes easier if we sort of highlight a few people and they become the shorthand for the movement. And that in itself is a travesty because I would much rather hear about the stories and the people who benefited from Star. I would much rather hear about that and celebrate that impact and, and pass that impact along. And the tragedy within that story is Rivera recognizing when she was alive that the things that she was doing that were actually really important were not relevant enough for her to get attention. Mm. And yet through Stonewall, she did find her calling and she found her purpose. So I also see maybe why part of her wants to insert herself a little more in that narrative, not just for self-aggrandizement, but because she probably wished she was there. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can't, because you don't know. You don't know when a bar brawl that breaks out is going to turn out to be a revolution. You don't know that. Why would you want to go get yourself involved with a bar fight? And then afterwards, you're like, oh, shit, that turned out to be the thing that changed the trajectory of my life. And I mean, Rivera even said when GAA started was like, this is the group that we've been waiting for. Like, this is the group that we needed. And and it was then when she when she saw sort of the potential of having organized protests, of having organized groups to support and to forward gay rights, that she really saw the potential that she had. And and then from there looked at it and said, you know, we need to do better for trans people because that's a voice that's kind of getting minimized. And so having the courage to first of all get into activism as a, as an introvert. At, like active activism terrifies the shit out of me and listen i am all for resistance of oppression all the time at the same time starting an organization like star sheltering people who need shelter it's something that you can emulate right now if you want to emulate Mm -hmm. sylvia rivera don't throw a shot glass at a wall you need that for drinking do something for your community no, exactly. And again, Help people the, the, in need. the biggest takeaway, don't wait for the revolution. It's already happening. I just can't, honestly, I can't say enough good things about Marsha P. Johnson and, and Sylvia Rivera as humans. Essentially, what they were fighting for was the right and legality to exist. And I think that's a big thing to note is that when people are like, oh, these gays are just coming in and taking our rights. No, no, no. For the most part, people are just asking to exist. 
you know, they want to be able to have a job and not worry about losing it. They want to have a house and not worry about losing it. They want to be able to walk down the street hand in hand with their partner or partners, if you're into, and not get harassed or beaten or arrested. And those are the things that they're fighting for. They're fighting for sex workers to not be raped and then blamed for it. So in the end, it may not be the most glamorous story. It may not be the story that Hollywood makes, but it is the story that actually does give us the progress to be humans. Mm. Oh my God, Rachel, thank you so much for this episode. It was informative. It was enlightening. It moved me and I'm not easily moved. You are emotionally constipated. Well, thank you, Larry. And thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this. I would absolutely recommend that right now, right after this, go watch The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson on Netflix. It is heartbreaking and very fascinating. And I promise soon we will have an episode on Marsha P. Johnson. Again, David Carter is a biographer for for Sylvia Rivera. He has great work and just has some really wonderful stuff, especially an article called Debunking the Myths of Stonewall, which is excellent. If you enjoyed this, please show us some love by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing with your friends and especially your enemies. We're also on Instagram, and we will see you next episode when we will be talking about... The Tyrant Killers, or how gay drama got way out of hand and now you can vote. I love it. I love it when gay sex leads to democracy. Well, thank you again. Take care. Whether you throw the first brick or not, continue to kick ass. You know, I was going to joke that I actually am in it to take away straight people's rights. But you gave this beautiful speech. And now... And there's our outro. Now it seemed to be in poor taste. It would... I was I was really moved. And it's the best way to end. Oh, 